Well, let's pray. Loving Father, please show us something of yourself and teach us how to serve you better today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's never fun being given a job for which you are not prepared. Uh, I believe I've told the story before of my 10 minutes manning the drive-through of McDonald's Thorn Lee. Um, I'd just begun a six-month accountancy traineeship at McDonald's head office, uh, which is in Thornley, across the road from Thornley Maccas. And the policy of the company is or was that um, when you started in head office, you had to do two days in a store, in a real store, to learn the business at the coalface. The teenagers who were running the store uh, weren't quite sure what to do with me, so I flipped some burgers, I fried some apple pies, and then when they figured out I was from the accounts department, uh, they shoved me into the drive-through booth. My teenage minder stood in front of the console and she said, well, you press this, 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 and this, um, and then you do this and this, and then you take their money and you give them their change, and then you press this, 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 and this, and then you should have the next order up and the next customer will come along. And then she disappeared before I had the chance to say, huh? Well, the result was extreme chaos and embarrassment. I'm actually lucky that I got a good-natured tradie whose order was the one that I completely missed and tried to guess in the end. My teenage fellow workers sort of rolled their eyes, concluded that I was a bit thick and put me in the lunchroom out the back of the store to watch training videos for the next day and a half. They'd shoved me in the deep end, they hadn't taught me how to swim, and after that, it was the baby pool for me. Well, all Christians have been given responsibilities. We all have a calling to serve God. And that includes representing him, being Christ's ambassadors and witnesses and messengers. That's a role that needs particular preparation, which Ezekiel 1 to 3 can help us with. Our series in Ezekiel begins today with the call of Ezekiel to his ministry as a prophet of God, and God prepares him for his ministry here. While I wouldn't say that the, the office of prophet still exists in the church today, we are still called to speak God's word to each other and to the world. We can all still prophesy, even if we're not prophets as such, and we need to be prepared to do so, to speak God's word. How does God prepare his representatives to serve him? Well, in Ezekiel's time, God had a lot to say. It was in the midst of what's called the exile of Judah. God was using Babylon to punish his people for their unfaithfulness to him. In 597 BC, the Babylonians invaded the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, they carried off the king of Judah and all the nobles and much of the treasure, but they left Jerusalem and the temple still standing. Ezekiel the priest was among the people who was carried off to Babylon uh, in that first year 597. He was 25 years old. Five years later, in Babylon, age 30, Ezekiel receives the call to become God's prophet to the Jews in exile. It's a message of gloom and doom because the Jews had not repented. And after another five years, the, Babylon, the Babylonians would go back to Jerusalem and completely destroy the city and the temple. Here, 
God prepares Ezekiel for the job of speaking his word to these people, a word of judgment. It's a tough time to be God's representative. And God's preparation consisted of two aspects here. Behold your God and understand your task. There are three chapters we're looking at here. Uh, We don't have time for a great deal of detail, but chapter one is behold your God. God is not a distant boss. In order to serve God, you have to know God. And God comes to Ezekiel here as he's standing by the Kibar River, a canal near Ezekiel's new home in Babylon. Ezekiel sees a huge glowing storm moving towards him, which resolves into a supernatural vision of God. His gaze begins with the chariot throne before moving upwards to the appearance of God himself. So firstly, you'll see uh, if you look at the chapter, chapter one, that there are quite a few verses describing this chariot throne. The description seems to emphasize two things, God's mastery over creation and God's mobility within creation. The chariot's main feature, uh, perhaps, were, were the four living creatures, which represent God's creation at its peak. Four creatures represent the entire creation. Above their heads is a vault or an expanse or, or like a sky. And sitting above that vault is the throne. The creatures are identical and mostly human in form, but they each have four faces, two pairs of wings and feet like a calf. They each have the face of a human, a lion, an ox and an eagle, peak creatures. And the four are standing such that the whole thing faces all four points of the compass at once. But from every direction, if you looked at this arrangement, you would see a human face front and center, flanked by a lion and an ox facing you, and then at the back, an eagle would be facing you as well. The creatures glow like burning coals, and they're energized by a shared fire like lightning in verse 13. And they're directed by one spirit or wind or breath in verse 20. The whole thing moves by means of the creature's wings and wheels. And the wheels didn't just go forward and backwards, but also side to side because it was wheels intersecting wheels in verse 16. So the whole thing not only faces every direction at the same time, but can also move at any time in any direction without having to turn itself. So unlike a car or a chariot, which has a front and sides and a back, this vehicle is all front. It faces every direction all the time. And the wheels are covered with eyes, so it has no blind spots like your car. This is an image of God's mastery over creation. He sits above the highest, most glorious creatures. They glow and pulsate with energy because of the fire that comes from God, and they're directed by the spirit or the breath that comes from God. It's a picture of creation with massive energy and perfect symmetry and total coordination. It's all powered and held together under God. God rules over the creation, 
God gives life to the creation. God steers the creation. It's the absolute rule of God being depicted in this chariot throne. But it's also an image of God's mobility within creation. God is not stuck in the temple in Jerusalem. He comes thundering to Ezekiel in Babylon here. This presence can roll, it can fly, it can go anywhere, it has no blind spots, it's always facing all of the creation in every direction. Um, and so there's no place in which God's presence is weaker than some other place. Um, it's not like Wi-Fi in one corner of your home, it's a little bit weaker than next to the modem. No, God's presence is everywhere and facing every direction all the time. And there's no little corner of the earth that you can go where God can't see you or get to you. He is full strength everywhere. That, of course, is a great comfort for those who want God near them because his help can always be with you. But it's also a great challenge when you want to hide from God because his judgment will reach you anywhere. Such is the chariot throne of God. And then Ezekiel looks up above the awesome sparkling vault and sees the sapphire throne of God. The writers of the Old Testament are always very hesitant about describing what they see of God. They know that they're not seeing the totality of God in their vision. They're only seeing the appearance of God, what God is choosing to show them. And even then, they would rather describe what surrounds God rather than describing God himself. Because they don't want to dishonor God by attaching a mere human description to him. So in verse 28, uh, Ezekiel doesn't say, I saw God. He says, I saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. He's hesitant. But his description of that appearance emphasizes two things about God. He is personal and he is glorious. In verse 26, God represents himself to Ezekiel in a figure like that of a man. That doesn't imply that God is eternally in the shape of a man. Though, of course, we know God the Son is now human. But we might ask here, if God were to choose to let someone see his appearance, what shape would be best for his appearance to take? If he were just a blob, God might be seen as, as more of an impersonal force. Um, but if it were going to be a creature, it would have to be a man rather than uh, a cow or a frog or even a lion. Uh, I know we like lions, perhaps we've read the book, the Narnia books, but, but humans are the pinnacle of creation and it's with humans that God relates personally. So I think the point in, in God's appearance uh, being that of a man, in shape at least, um, is that God is personal. He appears for the sake of personal relationship with us. He wants to know us personally. But we also need to appreciate that he is unimaginably glorious. This person is glowing, full of fire, verse 27, and he is wrapped in brilliant light like a rainbow, glowing. There's a radiance around him. As Paul says in 1 Timothy, he lives in unapproachable light. Such is God. When Ezekiel saw this, he fell face down. In verse 28, he sensed that he wasn't worthy of seeing this. He wasn't worthy of a relationship with this God. 
But the thing is that we all need to meet God. God calls all of us into relationship with him. The way we meet God today is through his son, Jesus. And our awareness of him grows from his word, the Bible, by his spirit. There probably won't be lightning and thunder as the chariot throne approaches us. But we still meet God as we read his word, including this passage, especially the New Testament where we meet Jesus. And the spirit works in us so that we see the glory of God in Christ and an awareness of God grows such that we meet God personally and we, we see something of his glory, at least with the eyes of our hearts. Perhaps uh, in, in our time, more of an inside-out experience meeting God uh, than Ezekiel's outside-in experience of God. But the point is, you and I can also meet this God through his word and through his spirit. If we don't meet this God um, personally and appreciate something of his glory, then we cannot hope to serve him. For Ezekiel, this vision of God is given to drive his service of God. If he was going to represent this God, he needed a profound sense of whom he would be representing. And if he was going to suffer for this God, he needed to know the person for whom he would be suffering. It's the same for us. Christian ministry has to be driven by a personal knowing of God in his glory. If you don't know him, you cannot serve him. We need to pray, therefore, that we will see God more clearly, that by the spirit of God, our awareness of God will grow as we see him in the scriptures in Christ. So the first aspect of Ezekiel's preparation was to behold his God. The second aspect in chapters two and three is to understand your task. Like most prophets, Ezekiel's ministry would be a test of endurance under trial. He would need a big vision of God to keep at it. And God gives us plenty of warning in chapters two and three about what uh, we're in for as servants of God. We can get a pretty uh, clear idea of two things from these chapters, uh, the prophet's role and the prophet's pain. The prophet's role is to go where God sends, to say what God says, and to feel what God feels. That's the role of the prophet. So in chapter 2, verse 3, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites. Son of man there, incidentally, is not a title as it became in Daniel 7 and then into the New Testament. Ezekiel's not the son of man. He's just another son of man, meaning another mere human. But that might give us pause to reflect on the fact that God sends mere humans to be his representatives. We might think, how could that possibly be an effective strategy? How could a mere human possibly represent the God of Ezekiel chapter 1? Well, firstly, we, we might remember that God sent his son to be, become the perfect human representative, Jesus Christ. And we might also remember that when God sends us, he also empowers us and helps us. As ambassadors of Christ, we know the Holy Spirit works before and after and alongside and through our efforts as we represent him. So we can be confident in him rather than in our abilities. God is able to use 
mere sons and daughters of man. So, so while we are not prophets as such, we should go where God sends, like Ezekiel. And then we need to say what God says. The essence of the ministry was pretty simple. Chapter 2, verse 4. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. As God's representatives, we're not free to make his message up. We're not free to change his message. We're not free to add bits. We're not free to leave anything out. Just say what God says. Sometimes it's tempting to stop talking when no one seems to be listening. Um, most preachers know that feeling. Maybe teachers as well. But God tells Ezekiel, your job is to say it whether people are listening or not. Uh, from chapter 3, verse 16, God says to Ezekiel, you are a watchman. Your job is to give the warning. If you give it and they ignore it, then it's on them. But if you don't give the warning, then it's on you. You're not free to stop speaking if God is speaking. You have to say what he says. It's up to them what they do with the message, but it's up to you to deliver it. This should be a reminder to Christians that God is speaking in our time, just as he was in Ezekiel's. And our message is a warning of judgment, but it's also an urgent offer of salvation in Christ. If people never hear that message, whose fault will it be? If the people who are close to us never hear that message, whose fault will it be? It's our job to say what God says, and God is speaking. But it's not just a job, um, as if we're just mouths that God uses. To represent God properly, we need also to feel what God feels. At the start of chapter 3, Ezekiel was given a scroll representing his message. It was covered front and back with the message of God, a message of lament and warning and woe. God had a lot to say. Ezekiel was told to eat that scroll, which he did. And despite the somber message, it tasted sweet because the word of God is always good, even a message of judgment. Ezekiel had to internalize his own message. He couldn't just speak it. He had to believe it and he had to feel it and he had to embody it. So God says, eat this scroll. And then in chapter 3, verse 10, uh, he says, Son of man, listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. So ministry is not just an information dump on people. There needs to be a feeling and a pleading and a caring and an example that goes with the message. Such is the prophet's role, and much of it is relevant to Christian ministry and witness. Go where God sends, say what God says, feel what God feels. But God also warns Ezekiel of the prophet's pain. This is not going to be easy. Over and over again here, uh, God tells Ezekiel that the people are rebellious. Chapter 2, verse 4, they are obstinate and stubborn. They have their own opinions and won't be interested in what you're saying. They will think you're weird and a loser and a bore. They won't invite you to their birthday parties. They'll avoid you in the supermarket aisle. Chapter 2, verse 6, being with them will be like sitting in a patch of briars and thorns and with scorpions everywhere. 
awkward and painful. You won't know how to position yourself. Chapter 3, verse 4 and following. It would be easier to go to a foreign nation who don't even speak the same language than to speak my word to these people because they don't want to hear what you have to say. They are hard, says God, but I will make your, your forehead also hard so that you can keep bashing your head against this brick wall. The difficulty is that the representative of God lives between two worlds, the kingdom of God on the one hand and the world and people we care about on the other. We have to stand apart from the world for God's sake, and that hurts. You see the tension in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, as the reality of his call dawns on him. Those verses read, The Spirit then lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness and in anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord on me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kibar River, and there where they were living, I sat among them for seven days, deeply distressed. So he feels how God feels. He feels God's anger at these people for their sinfulness, having seen a vision of God's glory. He feels this righteous indignation. But then he sits among these people and he's overwhelmed by the prospect of a lifetime having to confront them on God's behalf. Just having some measure of responsibility for the souls of others is a burden that sits uncomfortably on everyone who acknowledges it. But the servant of God needs to accept the pain along with the privilege. I'm going to wrap this up very quickly now by urging you to do two things. The first thing I want to urge you to do is welcome the word yourself. If God calls and sends somebody to you, listen to them and welcome God's word from them. And God has called and sent somebody to you. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. Listen to him. Read your Bible and listen to those who bring the Bible to you. Understand their role and don't hate them for it. Welcome the word, especially since in receiving the word, we meet the God who came to Ezekiel for ourselves. You can meet God in his word if you welcome it. Secondly, let me urge you to speak the word as God gives you opportunity and responsibility to do so. Jesus is sending his people out. Some are missionaries, some are preachers. We are all witnesses. We're all called to live between two worlds, represent God and pay the price when it's needed. And we need to be prepared. Behold your God, understand your task and accept that task. I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to see you more clearly and may our awareness of you and your glory grow. Help us to serve you more faithfully in love, both for you and our fellow human beings. In Jesus' name, amen.